Hello, and welcome to the Verity Podcast for Thursday, September 14th, 2023, the podcast that separates the fact from the narrative spin. I'm Adam Clark. And I'm Scott Wallace with today's top headlines. The U.S. Senate holds meetings to explore solutions to AI dangers. Kim Jong-un pledges support to Russia in his meeting with Putin. While a Ukrainian naval attack in Crimea reportedly damaged two Russian warships. China's Navy begins its reportedly largest ever Pacific drills. In Mali, dozens are killed in clashes with Tuareg rebels. The Biden administration sends a memo to the media about his impeachment probe. Kevin McCarthy could see his House speakership challenged. Five former officials are indicted in Tyree Nichols' death. An alleged whistleblower accuses the CIA of bribery over the COVID lab leak theory. And rescue teams battle a rising death toll in Libya's catastrophic floods. Our top story, U.S. Senate hearings seek solutions to AI dangers. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, The Guardian, NBC News, and The Washington Post. Congress is this week holding three hearings on the regulation of artificial intelligence with top industry executives and experts set to attend. The first hearing, titled Oversight of AI Legislating on Artificial Intelligence, took place Tuesday and was headed by Senators Richard Blumenthal and Josh Hawley, who led the Judiciary Subcommittee on Privacy, Technology, and the Law. The hearing will be the subcommittee's third this year about AI regulation. The hearing also came days after the two senators released their one-page legislative framework for regulating AI, which called for the creation of an independent oversight body AI companies would have to register with, among other legislative measures. Separately on Tuesday, Senators John Hickenlooper and Marsha Blackburn, who lead a Commerce and Science subcommittee, held a hearing discussing ways in which AI companies can boost transparency and earn the trust of the public. The main event of the AI-focused week will take place Wednesday, when Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is set to hold his first AI Insight Forum. All 100 senators are set to hear from some of the biggest names in the tech and AI industries on the day, including Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg, and Bill Gates. A House Oversight Subcommittee will also hold a hearing Thursday to discuss potential dangers in federal agency adoption of AI, along with evaluating the need for safeguards to protect privacy and ensure equity. Thank you, Scott. Scott just laid out the facts for us in that story. I'm going to start our first round of narrative spins with a pro-establishment narrative provided by FedScoop. Keeping society safe from the dangers of AI will require legislation. These hearings and meetings between lawmakers and tech industry professionals are crucial to keeping the public safe from the harms of AI. This technology, while exciting, has the possibility to cause great harm, and safeguards must be put in place to mitigate disaster and regulate this powerful innovation. And Wired Magazine counters with the establishment critical narrative. While safeguards should be put in place to ensure AI technology is not used for nefarious purposes, government regulation of the technology could stifle creativity and innovation. It is also unclear how any government oversight body could possibly have the broad range of technical and legal knowledge required to oversee the use of AI technology in a plethora of sectors. This topic is going to need extensive discussion and research before any sort of legislation should be passed. 
And from time to time, the minds at the Metaculous Prediction community come up with a nerd narrative for our stories. They've got one for this one that says there's a 66% chance that Meta will claim there was AI-driven, quote, coordinated inauthentic behavior to influence the 2024 U.S. presidential election. Well, Adam, I think at the very least, as we, you know, careen headlong into a, you know, a potential dystopia, at least now we know a little bit how much AI affects our daily lives. I feel like a short time ago it was also affecting us, but we didn't really know it. You're saying that like uh, um, the stuff that's been going on behind the scenes to, to, to track us and to spy on yeah. us, things like yeah, that. I, I think at least it's the devil we know a little bit more. I mean, just the fact that they're having this this legislative meeting, people are talking about it and people know about it. So at least we know that we're being guided by a sinister, unseen hand, as opposed to that hand being completely invisible. Does that give you a little more comfort, Scott? Oh, much more. I, I mean, I, you know, if, if a sinister, unseen hand wants to give me a neck rub, then I'll, I'll take it. I just like to know who's choking me, you know? I, yeah, I'd like that's right. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Kim Jong-un pledges support for Russia's sacred fight in his meeting with Putin. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Guardian, Associated Press, TASS, and Al Jazeera. In his first trip outside North Korea since 2019, when he traveled to Russia and met with President Vladimir Putin, Kim Jong-un again went to the country and met with his Russian counterpart on Wednesday. Meeting Putin at the Vostoche Cosmodrome in Russia's Far East, where the two men toured the Soyuz-2 space rocket launch facility, the North Korean leader pledged full and unconditional support for Russia adding that Pyongyang will always stand with Russia in the fight against anti-imperialism. Kim said Russia is waging a sacred fight to defend its sovereignty, security interests, and justice. He added, I take this opportunity to confirm that we will always stand with Russia on the anti-imperialist front. The meeting comes amid reports that Russia is trying to secure North Korean weaponry for its war in Ukraine while North Korea seeks Russian technology for satellites and rockets. When asked about a possible weapons deal, Putin replied the leaders would discuss all issues. On Russian rocket and satellite technology, the Kremlin leaders said, that's why we came here. Following a tour of the facility, Putin and Kim went for private talks where they were also expected to discuss economic cooperation and humanitarian assistance for North Korea. However, Kremlin spokesperson Dmitry Peskov told reporters that no documents would be signed today. Meanwhile, just hours before the talks, North Korea launched a test of two ballistic missiles into the sea off the nation's east coast. A Japanese official said the missiles landed in the waters outside of the country's exclusive economic zone. There were no reports of damage to vessels or aircraft. Thanks for those facts, Adam. We have a pro-establishment narrative from The Guardian. The fact that Putin has traveled all the way to Russia's Far East to meet with Kim shows just how desperate the isolated leader is to secure weaponry, while his country struggles to keep up with the production of munitions needed to fight its war in Ukraine. And that's followed up with a pro-Russia narrative by TASS. North Korea is Russia's close neighbor. As such, Moscow will strive to strike deals that mutually benefit both countries. What outside administrations have to say about this diplomatic relationship is of no importance and will not factor into Russia's decision-making. And Metaculus comes again with a nerd narrative. This time they say there's a 29% chance there will be a major famine in North Korea before the year 2025. 
if Russia keeps getting into trouble, they might run out of food that they were pledging to help with North Korea. So, yeah, they might not have food coming from Russia. It's tough when uh, when the war is in fighting the breadbasket of that hemisphere, essentially, is where this the war in Ukraine is taking place. Yeah. It doesn't behoove anyone to make it uh, to turn Ukraine into a battlefield food wise. Something tells me, though, that Kim Jong Un has a little more uh, interest in those rockets and technology than he does in food, though. Mm, have you ever seen the guy? In a related story, a Ukrainian attack on Crimea damages Russian warships. Here are the facts as agreed upon by TASS, NBC News, CNN, and BBC News. Two Russian warships were reportedly damaged after Ukraine launched a missile attack on a naval shipyard in Crimea in the early hours of Wednesday. Russia's defense ministry claimed that Ukrainian armed forces attacked the shipyard in Sevastopol with 10 cruise missiles, seven of which it said Russian troops shot down. It added that three unmanned motorboats were also directed at the site, but were intercepted and destroyed by patrolling vessels. The two vessels that were reportedly damaged, a large landing ship and a submarine, comprised one of Ukraine's most substantial attacks on Crimea and Russia's Black Sea fleet since the war began. Mikhail Razovhayev, governor of Sevastopol, claimed that four of the 24 people injured in the attack were in a moderately severe condition. Meanwhile, Mykola Oleschuk, head of Ukraine's Air Force, thanked his pilots for their excellent combat work. He also strongly implied that UK Storm Shadow or French Scalp cruise missiles were used. Thanks, Scott. We're going to start the spins off with a pro-Ukraine narrative coming from Ukraine Forum. The fact that Ukraine used cruise missiles on targets inside Crimea pierced through Russia's air defenses and caused substantial damage to its weaponry reminds Moscow that attacks like this will continue until Crimea is rightfully returned. Counter that with this pro-Russian narrative from TASS. Wednesday's incident will have no bearing on the overall direction of the conflict. Moreover, as Crimea has always been integral to Russia, it's futile to think that Ukraine can seize it by attacking Sevastopol and the Black Sea Fleet. And the nerds of Metaculus have an opinion. They say that there's a 1% chance that Ukraine will have de facto control of Sevastopol on January 1st, 2024. It's going to take a little bit more than just shooting some missiles at them, I guess. Crimea is such a key point. It's basically Russia's only, you know, here in the United States, we take for granted we have these huge coastlines. You know, if someone took the Chesapeake Bay from us, we would still have a bunch of other ones. But this is basically their Chesapeake Bay. Oh, yeah, yeah. They've got no other. uh, That's that's, is is that their only port, isn't it? It's the only port that's 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 thawed all year round. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. It will. It would almost behoove them to make a deal for, you know, Ukraine, um, we're going to lease out this port to you. You can do more with it than we can, but we need to make it. They almost, it almost, there's almost no way to make it so that Ukraine can take Crimea back and have Russia be satisfied. There has to be some kind of horrible compromise, which is, I think, what this, what this battle is all about. I think that lease idea might be a good idea. What you call up? Uh... I'm going to call up Putin and, uh, and I'm going to say he was my first call. <laughs> And I'm going to call up, uh, I'm going to call up uh, Zelensky and say, my you're first my first call. call. Yeah. And then, and we'll work it out that way. Kind of like how Don King got the rumble in the jungle. He called Ali and said, I already have foreman on board. You, you call Putin and you say, hey, I, I hear um, um, Zelensky's considering uh, leasing the area. Yeah, right. And, and then you call, then you call Zelensky right. and say, I hear Putin would be interested in uh-huh. a, a lease possibly. Yeah, before, and then I can take yeah. a fat slice off the top and everything's great. <laughs> You always got to take your slice, Scott. Yeah. 
My efforts are worth something. China's Navy begins large-scale Pacific drills. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Financial Times, South China Morning Post, Al Jazeera, Newsweek, Global Times, and CNN. The Chinese People's Liberation Army, or PLA Navy, has reported launching this week unannounced military drills in waters between Taiwan, the Philippines, and Guam, allegedly the largest ever involving an aircraft carrier in the Western Pacific. This comes as Taiwan claimed to have detected at least 84 warplanes and 33 warships around the island in the past three days, adding that some of them have joined the Shandong aircraft carrier for combat training. At least 35 military planes, including J-10 fighters, were seen around the island on Wednesday, with 28 of them crossing the Taiwan Strait median line or entering the southwestern corner of Taipei's Self-Declared Air Defense Identification Zone, or the ADIS. Additionally, more than 20 PLA naval vessels, including Type O-55 destroyers, reportedly sailed on Wednesday around Taiwan through the Bashi Channel and Miyako Strait into the Pacific. Beijing has yet to comment on the military activity. The Shandong entered the West Pacific on Monday, two days after the U.S. Navy destroyer USS Ralph Johnson and the Canadian Navy frigate HMCS Ottawa sailed through the Taiwan Strait in a move that Beijing closely monitored. Meanwhile, the Chinese Communist Party's Central Committee and the State Council revealed Tuesday an integration plan between the coastal province of Fujian and the self-ruling island of Taiwan to deepen cross-strait cooperation. Thanks, Adam. The anti-China narrative comes from Taiwan News. Beijing is waging psychological warfare on Taiwan by periodically sending Chinese military aircraft into the island nation's air defense identification zone. This pressure campaign aims to intimidate Taiwanese leaders and their citizens to achieve a political outcome favorable to China. The U.S. must stand with its democratic ally and reject efforts by the PRC to undermine Taiwanese sovereignty. And that's going to be countered with a pro-China narrative by Global Times. The island of Taiwan has been an integral part of Chinese territory for centuries. However, the Chinese people on both sides of the straits are yet to be reunified following the 1949 split. Beijing has long sought to peacefully reunify the motherland under the agreed-upon One China policy, which the U.S. signed off on. But secessionist Taiwanese officials backed by the U.S., have recently begun to pursue provocative actions that are threatening the status quo. And Metaculus weighs in again with this nerd narrative. There's a 1% chance that China will launch a full-scale invasion of Taiwan in the year 2023. I would just broadcast it from our spy satellites and like commentate it like a sports event. Oh, Team Blue. Well, they screwed that they screwed the supply lines up on that one. You know, like <laughs> it, like uh it's like watching broadcast a, it for the world to see. You yeah. remember that uh, I don't know if you ever played that game called Command and Conquer, a uh, video game? Yes. It'd be just it'd be like that. Absolutely. Right? And listen, FanDuel can take oh, bets on it. We make a whole thing out of it. It'd be awesome. <laughs> it'd, be, it'd be so big in Vegas. That'd be great. It would be huge, like like for real. And then donate all the money to Taiwan. <laughs> we get the, some uh, like ex-military naval officers, you know, to make color commentaries. They can... Yeah, get Storm and Norman Schwarzkopf oh, so in the awesome. booth or whatever. It'd be awesome. Like uh, for real. Like I, I, I wasn't. We didn't plan this out ahead of time, but I kind of want this to happen like badly. <laughs> Mayhem in Mali as dozens are killed in clashes with Tuareg rebels. 
Here are the facts as agreed upon by News 24, The Defense Post, Today Online, Le Monde, Al Jazeera, and Reuters. According to the Malian military, 10 soldiers and 46 militants were killed in fighting between the Malian army and a Tuareg rebel group in the northern town of Borem on Tuesday. Earlier on Tuesday, an alliance of Tuareg-dominated groups calling itself the Coordination of Azawad Movements, or CMA, announced that it had taken control of a camp and several forward posts from the army and the allied Russian paramilitary group Wagner during an offensive on the town. However, following what the Rebel Alliance said was intense fighting to capture the strategically important town located between Gao and Timbuktu, the Malian army claimed its troops regained control of their positions with air force support. In August, fighting intensified between Malian forces and the Tuareg rebels, with both sides aiming to gain control of areas recently vacated by UN troops after the Malian government ordered France and the UN to leave the nation. On Monday, the rebels, who aim for independence or autonomy, but signed a peace deal with Bamako in 2015, called on the region's population to join the war effort against the government and its allied Russian Wagner forces to regain control of the entire territory. Tuesday's attack came after suspected jihadists killed 64 in an attack on an army camp in the country's north and on a passenger ship last week, followed by a suicide attack on a military base in Gao that killed about 10 soldiers on Friday, as reported by the Malian military. Thank you, Scott. Our spins are going to start off with a pro-establishment narrative provided by Al-Arabia. The recent clashes and the brief capture of Borem are the latest signs that the 2015 peace agreement between the Malian junta and the Tuareg rebels is all but history. Violence in the country, which is on the rise again due to Bamako and the brutal Wagner mercenaries' failure to honor the agreement, is also being exacerbated by the withdrawal of the UN peacekeeping mission. The expulsion of French forces and the UN, who were also monitoring the peace agreement's implementation, is also likely to strengthen regional Islamists. And we have an establishment critical narrative from the Mail and Guardian. The recent and tragic upsurge in violence in Mali demands a clear analysis of the underlying causes. It was Libya's collapse following the 2011 NATO intervention that triggered the Tuareg rebellion and regional Islamist insurgency. France and the U.S. aren't part of the solution, but of the problem in Africa, while pretending to only want to help in fighting terrorism. Yet far from taking their share of responsibility for insecurity and destabilization, they have declared the Sahel's new governments and the Wagner forces to be the scapegoats. You know, this is a horrible story and all, but, you know, it's good good to see Timbuktu getting a little coverage. I, I, I Honestly, if someone had asked me, is Timbuktu real or fake? It almost, I'm not sure I would have been able to say it was a real place. It almost <laughs> kind of seems like, you know, one of those one of those places that's not that's not real. It's you a know? place on Bugs Bunny's map. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. When Eric and I the other day were talking about Jellystone Park and how I only recently found out it wasn't real. <laughs> so there's that. That That's who you're listening to, people. Hey, Scott, it's okay. Me and Yogi, we, we think it's real, too. Isn't that right, Yogi? Hey, that's right, boo-boo. It's okay, Scott. We'll be at the park anyway. Could really go for a picnic <laughs> basket about now. The White House has asked the media to scrutinize the Biden impeachment inquiry. And here are the facts as agreed upon by NBC, Fox News, CNN, and Washington Examiner. In a memo addressed to the editorial leadership at media outlets and released Tuesday, 
the White House called on the media to ramp up its scrutiny of House Republicans regarding their impeachment inquiry on President Joe Biden. The memo, written by a special assistant to the president, Ian Sams, argued that after nearly nine months of investigating, the House GOP has uncovered none of the constitutionally required violations deserving of impeachment, which are treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. The letter, which said the lack of evidence should set off alarm bells for news organizations, was reportedly sent to executives at media outlets including CNN, The New York Times, Fox News, The Associated Press, and CBS News, among others. Sams also referenced some Republican House members who have been hesitant to support impeachment, claiming that the allegations against Biden are unfounded and, in virtually all cases, have been actively disproven. This follows House Speaker Kevin McCarthy's decision to open an official inquiry into Biden's alleged wrongdoings, including that the president used his official office to coordinate with Hunter Biden's business partners about Hunter's role in Burisma, the Ukrainian energy company. Meanwhile, one of the Republicans currently unsure about impeachment, Representative Ken Buck, the Republican from Colorado, said Sunday that the time for impeachment is the time when there's evidence linking President Biden to a high crime or misdemeanor, which doesn't exist right now. Congressman Jamal Bowman is the source of this Democratic narrative. The reason House Republicans are pushing an evidence-lacking impeachment inquiry is to distract from their lack of interest in policymaking. With a potential government shutdown just three weeks away, Speaker McCarthy, Republican of California, is trying to ensure that the public doesn't blame him for government employees not getting paid and small businesses not being able to apply for federal loans. The GOP would rather wave a tiresome impeachment inquiry in their constituents' faces instead of passing a meaningful appropriations bill. And Town Hall is going to rebuke that with a Republican narrative. As more evidence of Biden's corruption record emerges every day, the White House has shifted its response from there's no evidence against him to there's no direct evidence against him. Since the American people aren't fooled easily, the Biden administration has now resorted to leveraging its deep state relationship with the media industry. This is a concerning attempt to weaponize news coverage and journalism. The Republicans are just jealous because the Democrats, when they ran the House, they got to throw two impeachment parties, and the Republicans haven't gotten to throw in there yet. There's yet so. Yeah, but the Republicans got to nominate Supreme Court justices. I think we're even. I think I think I think it's even. They got to impeach. They got to put in Supreme yeah. Court justices. In fact, I'm not I, sure. No, I, I wouldn't so. say that. I wasn't even taking that into account because uh, let's talk about yeah. the weight of those impeachment trials versus the weight of three Supreme Court justices. Yeah. Forever. Woo! Man, yep. that's been some changes. <laughs> Gates threatens McCarthy speakership. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Fox News, Reuters, and USA Today. On Tuesday, Representative Matt Gates, Republican of Florida, accused House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Republican of California, of being out of compliance with the agreement that allowed McCarthy to assume the speakership and threatened to lead a removal of McCarthy from his post. Gates cited a list of promises he said McCarthy hasn't kept, including not holding votes on term limits for lawmakers and balanced budgets, and not releasing the full security tapes from the January 6, 2021 riots at the U.S. Capitol building. Gates' statement came the same day McCarthy conceded to pressure from Gates and a portion of the House GOP by announcing a formal impeachment probe for Democratic President Joe Biden in several House communities. 
In January, McCarthy won the speakership on his 15th vote after making several promises to a faction of his party in exchange for their votes. Meanwhile, Congress has until September 30th to avoid a government shutdown, and McCarthy is being urged by GOP colleagues to avoid making any short-term agreements with Democrats without also obtaining stricter border security provisions as well as other provisions. Although it will inevitably be up to the House to vote on whether to impeach Biden, McCarthy announced the inquiry Tuesday by saying there's evidence Biden and his son Hunter are surrounded by a culture of corruption. Thank you, Scott. As you can imagine, with a story like this, we've got some politically motivated spins happening, starting off with a Republican narrative provided by Red State. By granting the request of much of his caucus to open an impeachment inquiry, Kevin McCarthy is finally allowing House committees to dig deeper into Biden's alleged crimes and solidify the case against the president. Republicans should rally around this decision and then remain unified for the upcoming budgetary battle. If Republicans stick together, they can accomplish their goals and save the country from the Biden administration. And the second in our quartet of narratives is this establishment critical stance from The Daily Caller. McCarthy was voted speaker based on assurances he gave about numerous issues, yet all he's followed through on is this inquiry. This is just a baby step toward what the House GOP wants to accomplish. It's time for McCarthy to act or get out of the way. And of course, the Democrats are going to have a say on this story, and it's been written by the nation. McCarthy is proving he's vulnerable in the face of a small faction of his party. And now he's finding out what happens when you're indebted to the so-called Freedom Caucus. No amount of meeting their demands will ever be enough. He should know that they can't oust him because no one else is willing to stand up for the speakership. If he doesn't toughen up, he might wind up taking down Congress and perhaps the whole government with it. And Metaculus brings us another nerd narrative. This time they predict there's a 25% chance that Biden will be impeached by the U.S. House of Representatives. Not gonna happen. 25% chance. I mean, there was a 18% chance Trump was gonna get elected, so I guess... Hey, we uh, weren't even doing this podcast in 2016. What are you talking about? There you go. <laughs> Five former police officers have been indicted in Tyree Nichols's death. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, USA Today, Reuters, and NPR Online News. On Tuesday, five former Memphis police officers involved in the fatal beating of Tyree Nichols were charged in federal court for violating Nichols' civil rights. The four-count indictment charged each with willfully depriving Nichols of his constitutional rights under the color of law through excessive force, failure to intervene, and deliberate indifference, in addition to conspiring to tamper with witnesses and obstruction of justice through witness tampering. The federal charges come nine months after the officers violently hit Nichols following a traffic stop that resulted in his death three days later. The defendants have pleaded not guilty to state charges of second-degree murder, aggravated assault, and official misconduct. Nichols's autopsy had reportedly revealed sustained blunt force injuries to his head, neck, torso, and extremities, multiple cortical contusions, and sustained multiple contusions, abrasions, and bruising to his body. Each of the two civil rights charges carries a maximum punishment of life in prison while the other two counts are each punishable by up to 20 years in prison. Meanwhile, the Department of Justice has launched a formal investigation into the Memphis Police Department to examine allegations that it follows a pattern or practice of unconstitutional conduct and discriminatory policing based on race. 
All right. Thanks for those facts, Adam. Narrative A on this story comes from CNN. The indictment of the five officers responsible for the death of Tyree Nichols is what justice should look like in America. Officers who abuse their authority and betray their oaths destroy public relationships and trust nationwide. This announcement sets a new precedent, puts officers on notice that they are not above the law, and signals that using their badge to apply excessive force, intimidate, and kill will not go unpunished. There's also a narrative B provided by Associated Press. Increased crime in Memphis has forced law enforcement to lower the requirements to become an officer, putting many new, untrained, and unexperienced officers on the beat. Even more so, what is notably missing from the police department are veteran, tried, and actual supervisors. Having a seasoned officer in charge who would have stepped in and suspended the actions of those five young officers could have avoided this tragic ending. And there's another nerd narrative from Metaculus. They say there's a 1% chance that a large American city will fully abolish its police department before the year 2035. A whistleblower claims the CIA bribed its COVID team to reject the lab leak theory. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Fox News, Oversight, Newsweek, and Daily Mail. An anonymous senior-level CIA whistleblower who testified Tuesday before the U.S. House Select Subcommittee on the Coronavirus Pandemic and Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence has claimed that the agency bribed analysts to cover up their findings that COVID originated in a lab in Wuhan, China. The testimony alleges that only one analyst of the seven-member COVID discovery team originally believed the virus emerged from zoonosis with the others believing the intelligence and science were sufficient to make a low-confidence assessment that it was spurred by a lab leak. According to a letter sent by House Coronavirus Subcommittee Chairman Brad Wenstrup and House Intelligence Committee Chairman Mike Turner to CIA Director William Burns, the whistleblower is a, quote, multi-decade current agency officer. The Republican congressman from Ohio set a September 26 deadline for the CIA to hand over all documents related to the discovery team and communications with other federal agencies, including the FBI, the State Department, and the Energy Department. In response, CIA spokeswoman Tammy Kupperman Thorpe said the agency is committed to the highest standards of analytic rigor, integrity, and objectivity, adding that they do not pay analysts to reach specific conclusions. As of today, the FBI and Department of Energy support the lab leak theory, while other federal agencies still believe natural contact with wild animals caused the outbreak. The CIA reportedly remains undecided between both hypotheses. All right, Scott, this story is going to start off some politically motivated spin, starting off with a Democratic narrative provided by Quillette. Despite more Main Street media outlets now entertaining the lab leak hypothesis, There is still no more evidence of such a theory today than there was when the only ones pushing it were Trump-supporting conspiracy theorists. Wet markets selling dangerous animals have always been more plausible than trained scientists leaking a deadly virus, and that fact stands true today. Serious researchers from America to China have thoroughly investigated this matter, and none have found evidence to the contrary. And the Federalist counters with the Republican narrative. For years, U.S. intelligence agencies, bureaucrats, media outlets, and tech companies worked tirelessly to censor any and all talk of the lab leak theory. Now that both the FBI and Department of Energy have given it credence, it's time to investigate why the CIA still hasn't shifted its view on the matter and what this whistleblower can tell us about it. If the most powerful people in the nation tried hiding a story for years, 
it would behoove the public to listen to the lone dissenter who's risking it all to challenge them. And the nerds have been busy today. They've got another prediction for this story. They think that there's a 50% chance that a majority of U.S. intelligence community organizations will support a lab leak hypothesis for COVID over a natural origin hypothesis by 2025. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. And our last story today concerns the floods in Libya, where aid has arrived, but the death toll has risen. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, CNN, BBC News, AA News, Associated Press, and Guardian. As of Wednesday, the death toll for the catastrophic storm Daniel that hit Libya over the weekend, causing two dams to collapse in the city of Derna, reportedly stands at around 6,000 and is expected to rise as rescue operations continue. With nearly 10,000 people unaccounted for and over 30,000 displaced, foreign aid, including rescue teams, food, clothes, and medical supplies, began to reach the nation Wednesday. Libya has been divided between two rival governments, one in the east and another in the west, since the overthrow of Muammar Gaddafi in 2011. Despite the division, both governments have come together to assist in the storm's aftermath. The city of Derna, the worst hit by the storm, is divided by the Wadi Derna a seasonal river protected from flooding by the construction of two dams in 1986. Storm Daniel caused both dams to fail, and deadly floods consumed everything in its path and left an estimated $67 million in damaged roads and bridges. The damaged roads have left rescuers struggling to reach the coastal city, which is home to around 89,000 people. In addition to Derna, other affected areas include the towns of Susa, Marj and Shahat, as well as the city of Benghazi, according to authorities. Storm Daniel has caused extensive damages in parts of Greece, Bulgaria, and Turkey last week, killing at least 27 people before it accelerated over the Mediterranean, hitting the shores of Libya. Thanks, Adam. We have a narrative A from Africa News. Years of conflict in Libya have left its 7 million residents vulnerable to the impacts of a changing climate, including droughts extreme heat, sea level rise, and food and water insecurity. Overdependence on oil exports and a lack of investment in agriculture and energy infrastructure have left isolated local governments burdened with the responsibility of securing a livable future in the country. And that's followed up with a narrative B by the United Nations Development Program. Libya is politically divided thanks to the 2011 NATO-backed uprising. Still, though Libya remains in a state of conflict, both governments are united in sending aid and funds to the affected areas. Additionally, the country is collaborating with the UN to create a bright future fit with renewable energy, environmental sustainability, and clean water, all of which will be contributing factors toward its future political stability. And finally, a nerd narrative from Metaculus predicting there's a 30% chance that Libya will hold a presidential election before the year 2025. You know, it's uh, a horrible thing that's happening in Libya, but maybe this could turn into a positive thing where all people get back together and have a common goal and they reunite everyone in their country. Yeah, they say never let a good crisis go to waste. So hopefully something good can come out of this one. Thanks for listening to the Verity Podcast for Thursday, September 14th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and we figure out which ones are about the same stories. 
for each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all the articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Verity, please visit our website, verity.news. You can also download the Verity app from the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Adam Clark, I'm Scott Wallace, inviting you to join us next time on the Verity Podcast. Verity Podcast.